Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Drew Meredith, thanks for joining me on the show, mate. Thank you. Good to see you again. Yeah, as always. Um, Likewise. So for those people who don't know, this is the first episode that you and I are airing in the Australian Investors Podcast channel. But for those people who do follow RASC um, or Waddle Partners more broadly, uh, we've been doing this for quite a while, a couple of months now, right? Yeah, since reporting season. What was that? July? Yeah, end of July, maybe? Yeah. So we'll get into... For those of you who don't know who Drew is, we'll, we'll, he'll share a bit about himself in just a moment. But um, Drew is a financial advisor. He's been in the industry for years. Uh, we work together, which is fantastic. We've been working together since about the beginning of the year, working in the Melbourne office. Um, and Drew's going to take us through a bit about what he does and then uh, talk to us about how he analyzes fund managers. As you'll, as you'll hear as he goes through, Drew talks to about anywhere between 10 and 15 fund managers or um, investors probably a week, um, which is huge. So he's got a lot to add. But Drew, mate, um, you, you actually sent me through some of the info on you before you, um, you know, created World Partners and, and, and worked for the business. So um, why don't you t- take us through um, back to when you graduated uni and and what you went on to do? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Thanks for having me again. I kind of, I think, like most people, we kind of fall into a career out of uni. You apply for all kinds of graduate programs. I ended up at uh, one of the big banks. I won't talk about it. Uh, which <laughs> which bank it was? Um, and uh, I mean, it became. This is in two thousand five. I think is when I took the first job. I've worked every day since <laughs> for fifteen years. So that's why I look tired sometimes. Uh, yeah, when it straight into a graduate program became evident this is in the middle of um you know the, the things that were being talked about in the royal commission uh mm. last year or the year before were all happening at the time in 2005 when i joined so it was it's a commission driven advice model it was about distributing in-house product yes there was strategic advice but it was mainly about getting paid a commission and a trail commission for whatever uh, products the client need there was always a product that fit uh, so i only lasted about 18 months there um yeah, right. it was uh, unemployed for about uh, 12 weeks, tried the CFA program. uh, And then halfway through the first unit, I met Jamie, who's business partner for the last 15 years. It's Mm -hmm. Jamie Nemesis at Waddle Partners. Um, He had just joined the, what's known as the first fee-for-service independent advisory firm in Australia. It was called Donnelly Wealth Management. It's had a few names over the years, as most businesses do. Yep. Uh, that was founded by Austin Donnelly, uh, history dating back to something like 1973. And it was basically all about transparency and fee-for-service. He was, interestingly, a expert witness for people suing their financial advisors in right. the so, 80s and 90s. So you left this big bank um, because you were kind of disgruntled with the way things were going. And then you thought this needs to be better. 
Yeah, you're being pushed in different directions. So you're either becoming a salesperson or you're becoming a back office uh, para planner. And there wasn't really the training you needed to be an advice to be a, a, a real or a proper advisor at the time. Um, mm. And it just didn't feel comfortable. Um, I think it was the main reason. I didn't know where I was going. I think it's the only time I've been unemployed <laughs> since I finished school. It was, it was great for a while. Um, interesting, I'm back in the same house now that <laughs> as I was then. Uh, I own it this time, which is fine. Um, <laughs> and so you, you worked at Donnelly Wealth Management um, and Jamie was already there, was he? Yeah, Jamie was there. He just bought about 50% of the company with uh, who is now the chairman of Waddle Partners. So it's Ian Murdoch. Mm-hmm. And he was married to Austin Donnelly's daughter. Um, right. That's kind of where all the, the connection comes in. Uh, eventually he retired, the business was sold. Um, and we started Waddle Partners with the same uh, same approach in 2010. So 10 years on our own. Mm. Cool. And so I think this is a really important point is that like, the way you set up the business is is really neat, right? Like um, we we did hear a lot of the, in 2019, a lot of the stuff come out in the Royal Commission about how it's very easy. It's a slippery slope for financial advisors and how things can go wrong pretty quickly. And obviously you guys recognized pretty early on the way that was going, right? And set the business up accordingly. It was kind of always set that way. So the, the Royal Commission and the... FOFA and all the different legislation that came in over the last uh, 10 years was basically bringing everything into line with what Austin was doing in, in the 2000s. Um, he was more a, an hourly, you know, tick your, your hours in a, um, in a book, which everyone knows is the most difficult way to, to run a business because you end up spending more time counting how many hours you've done than uh, actually helping people. Yep. Uh, so we're more on the fixed fee line where we negotiate a retainer type agreement and then you you guarantee that out for a few years so we can get on with business of, of managing people's uh, financial affairs. Mm. Um, so a lot of it was catching up. I think most things are good. So opting in, um, I think it's at the moment, it's still only every two years you need to opt in. Uh, but there are obviously, yeah, there's a, a lot of different advice needs. Um, and with a lot of people leaving the industry, there's a, there's a big group of people that lacking access to advice and that's the thing right like we we talk about this a lot the way the industry has gone most recently and you know there's there's so many people listening to this who understand and appreciate this but there's this almost dichotomy between people who really need advice but can't afford it and advisors who want to give advice but can't afford to give it because of regulation and because of all the, the changes that have happened and so many advisors have left it's just made it so hard for people to access proper advice, right? Yeah, I think there's there was in the industry publications this week there was talk that it, the average cost of a of opening a client's file is about three and a half thousand dollars a year. So including things like rent, insurance, um, all the different registrations uh, we have to have. So um, it's probably accurate, but I think. COVID, if anything's taught us to embrace technology, and once you embrace technology, you can easily advise a broader group of people. Uh, and I know the, the regulator is pretty um, keen on being able to provide more specific scaled advice, which means you know providing advice on a single, comparing your super funds or how much you can contribute rather than doing this comprehensive for every single person when they may not need it. Mm. 
And that's the thing, like, so for the difference between your business and my business is we're general advice. So we don't give personal advice and we focus on comparing, really. We do research, right? Yeah. And you guys can sit down with people, take that information as well as give them the, the advice they need. And where those lines meet in the middle is often pretty blurred from a regulatory perspective, but it's so important because at scale is pretty much the only way you can bring down, in my opinion, bring down the cost of good advice. If it's Even if it's just general advice, it's really the only way to do it. Would you agree with that? Or Yeah, and it's kind of, for us, we're very high touch. So we do quarterly written reviews. We're constantly answering, you know, it could be a, I'm buying a property tomorrow. Can you model what that impact that might have on my income? Uh, this is overnight requirements to do analysis of, of changing situations. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's not cheap to deliver, um, but it's yeah, it's just part of. I kind of lost your question there. <laughs> no, no, but it, but you're right. It is like so. I, I find this with people who who give personal advice is they often tend to have clients who um, are quite wealthy because they have to be that person to they have yeah. to have someone on call effectively. Like I know you guys have um, clients all around Australia and. Are you talking about scale? Yeah, a lot of them are over 50, right? And you have to be able to do that. Um, But if you're trying to deal with someone who, um, you know, might have $50,000 in investments and $70,000 in super, it's very hard to say, yeah, we'll be able to be on call for you. Um, I know you guys have kind of like a mixed model, but um, maybe you could just tell us a bit more about like how your business is split. Uh, My understanding is it's kind of like split in two, how you operate as a financial planner. Yep, yep. I think what I was trying to get to before was that, you know, the most, the biggest number of clients we can probably deal with per advisor is a hundred, um, you know, a hundred clients for an individual advisor with support team below us. So that's where your scale is kind of capped without using technology and that, you know, a hundred people, it actually allows you to know everything about them. When, when you call, you don't have to Google them and find out, you know, or not Google, <laughs> go through your CRM <laughs> and, and remember everything about them. So, yeah. Um, yeah, now our business is split, so it's fairly fairly typical. We're comprehensive. So on one side we do strategy, as you you've said in the past, it's like the free kicks. You know, yep. can you can you avoid mistakes? Is there are you making contribu- enough contributions? Do you have enough insurance? Do you have too much insurance? The only thing we don't do is margin lending. Um, and and credit and loans. It's just not something that we're uh, yeah. we're skilled at. Um uh, so everything on the strategic side, which is kind of a starting point, get all get all your structures, get all your superannuation, compare your super fund, all those sort of tasks. And then a lot of our clients join us for ongoing portfolio management. So mm. on that, we build portfolios from the top down, which is what we're here to discuss, I think. Yep. Uh, looking at starting at risk profiles, going down to asset allocation and then going down to individual investments. And that includes exchange trade funds, managed funds, direct shares, um, whatever's appropriate for each person. And that's mm. kind of the difference between a Wattle Partners and a, um, another, any, a lot of other groups where we can recommend whatever product is deemed appropriate and we don't have any in-house products. Yeah, and that's a big thing that came out again in the Royal Commission was that, um, I guess, that alignment that people have and the associations that you almost always see in the FSG, the Financial Services Guide. Um, so I know a lot of our listeners were keen to have some financial planning um, experts on the show. I think we had a survey recently and around about, I think it was about 45% of people that took the survey said that they want to hear from a financial planner and how 
people like yourself think about portfolio construction. Um, yep. Obviously, we've got, like you said, you've got the the free kick side. So you've got like the, the financial, the actual, what people associate with financial planning, but then you've got the portfolio management, that ongoing consultation. Um, I've, I've heard you say before, and you said it just before about a hundred clients. I've heard people say that when they have teams, um, this is for aligned groups, I should say in the past that they've had 500 clients, which yeah. per advisor, which is just unbelievable to me. Yeah, and there's and you're probably looking at annual reviews in that case, where there's kind of a templated document that goes out to assess their their situation. Um, and we've always been for 15 years, for better or worse, we do quarterly reviews, and that fits in with how we manage portfolios. We think you need structure around reviewing your asset allocation and reviewing what investments you're holding, and maybe it's just more for us that it forces us to to review them more regularly. Um, so it's. Yeah, I, I've, I think there's been averages of over a thousand um, advisors as well, and the whole system of large financial institutions is kind of the products um, subsidising the advice. So the advice isn't doesn't make money, and they issue products to to basically offset the cost. Yeah, um, which is which is crazy because that's what that if we talk about the lower end of this, like the the client um, base in terms of like you know their financial, I guess. I guess, I don't know what you call it, but just their ability to pay such high fees for a financial planner, but uh, they don't have that ability yet. They're getting the advice, which is probably not ideal for them, uh, which makes it so difficult at the same time. Um, People often say to me, um, you know, I'm pretty switched on. I understand investing. I do all this sort of stuff. What's, why would I need to pay a financial advisor? It's pretty expensive. Do you have that conversation a lot? A lot. We have one single quote that we use. I can say what our average fee is, but it um, basically for our fee, if we can stop you from making one mistake, that mistake could be on strategy. Um, you know, over contributing to super is something that a lot of people do, mm-hmm. and that can be extremely costly. If we can stop you from doing that, if you've got too much insurance and you're paying a, a commission that you shouldn't have, if we can stop you from one mistake or find you one investment idea, then our invest then our fee pays for its for itself every year. Um, and as kind of discussed off offline, uh, some of the decisions we made this year have, have added, you know, four or five times the cost of, of our fees mm. for, for a lot of our clients. So because it's pretty hard for people to quantify that because it's almost based on like the future, right? And unless they actually have the yeah. consultation with you, they're not going to know for sure what that is. And there's so many people I know in our community in the RAS community through this podcast, through many others, that there are so many of the listeners that are unadvised and, and probably could just take it even just a half an hour rain check to see what's going on. Um, or just a checkup, I should say, to see what's going on. It would make the world a difference. Um, are you happy to disclose your average fee or is that something that you kind of keep as a... I mean, we, for, for non-friends, if that makes sense, we have a minimum fee that's about 10,000 uh, mm. $10, a year. Uh, that's mainly for your retirees and um, you know 50 plus uh, yeah. professionals, but we do have alternatives for for younger people that are more focused around the investment side as well. Yeah, not just got, younger people, but because you've got the, like ETF, like model yeah. portfolios and that type of stuff as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So we've got like a capped fee model on the on the ETF side, which would just cover investments and asset allocation, whereas the the higher fee covers everything. So, you know, when the budget gets announced, we're out to you the next week talking about what 
what strategies you can implement, whether that's contributions or um, both include full service. We see it as three things. So one, we do three parts of the advice, strategy, asset allocation, investments. Yep. Um, and our service offering differentiates by having all three or just the investment part. Yeah. And it sounds like a lot of money, but um, for people, say, like around my age, um, turning 30 next week, Drew, so <laughs> go easy on me. Um, it's, it sounds like a lot of money for people that have a small portfolio, but for those that have a quite a large portfolio, like you said, that's um, that's basis. we're talking basis points and errors are typically measured in hundreds of basis points when it comes to portfolio allocation and construction. So um, you almost reverse the risk there for the client. Um, one of the things before we get into how you analyze fund managers and, and what you're looking for pretty much each week as you go about you know, thinking about that um, portfolio construction piece is um, just on the financial planning scene and, and side of things, what are some of the like challenges that financial planners are facing right now? Um, you know, coming off the back of the Royal Commission, just in general, I guess, um, as you go about meeting with clients, like what are some of the challenges that you face and what can some of our listeners take away from them to try and educate themselves? And the big one is fees, which we've discussed a little bit. Um, and there's a comparison, fair or not, to large large funds, you know, corporate or industry, where they charge something like a 0.8%. But in most cases, you're not getting any strategic advice or support out of that. All you're getting is investment advice and maybe some, as we said, scaled advice. You know, can I contribute? How much can I contribute? Mm. But we're, our, our fees which include everything and, you know, the ability to call us or text me at 11 o'clock at night or, (laughs) (laughs) and it happens more than you'd think. Um, It it just, you know, it it doesn't even compare. I've, I've, uh, you know, calling in the middle of March was a perfect example where we were fielding calls about what to do. I need to sell everything. It's, you know, freaking out. Not that many people called, but uh, you compare that to, you know, us facing the, the member or the client whereas if you're at a large fund uh, mm. and you call you get sent to an app and the app lets you transfer to cash overnight so um, yeah being the face to the client which I don't think many fund managers or many large corporate corporate or any major funds really quite understand mm. um, and when you've got millions of members you can't be in front of all of them or when you've got a hundred you know them you know their kids you know their <laughs> Uh, their grandparents, you kind of their dogs. I've taken my dog to meetings before, um, <laughs> so it's yeah, it's that being involved in in everything in the fee discussion, and then on the investment side, it's it's income. Um, people are, uh, are are just desperate to find income. You know, mm. we're people who got term deposits that are now offering 06 percent for five years, yeah. um, and so a lot of the role is about education. Seem similar to what you're doing and why we like your doing. What you're doing is, you know, there's no point seeking income if you're giving up capital. So it's yep. about educating people into why you're investing and why you're taking risk above cash and why you have to, basically. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that this is a, it's a unique kind of thing because um, it's, it's at those moments, and we'll get to why they're so important in just a minute when we talk about analyzing fund managers. Is that those moments of uncertainty that you need that sounding board and, um, those are the moments when you're, you're acting um, out of, I guess, emotion and not logic. Um, and it's easier said than done. Like I see it all the time with investors who are really, really intelligent people. Yet, you know, you get an instance like March uh, 2020 when you have you know, 
coronavirus and, and the market's crashing and even these really smart people are making really poor decisions and it's because they're they, they don't have that network that person that they can go to um and i've often heard through that you know 90 percent of a, a financial advisor's job is just education it's just educating the client on how to act and behave better and why strategies work um I'm, you and I are going to do this more regularly going forward. So I'm sure we can come back to this and talk about some of the challenges and opportunities in the industry as well. But one of the things that I wanted to get you on for was this discussion about how to analyze fund managers. As you know, I speak to a lot of fund managers and you with your podcast series, the Waddle Partners podcast series, you also speak to a lot of fund managers and you're doing this for your day job. So maybe we can just take it from the top you know, how you start that process of analyzing a fund manager, the things you're looking for, and then we'll drill down into, I guess, you know, how it comes to portfolio construction. Yep. Yeah, I think probably can I do the step back and go why you use a fund manager and yeah, how sure. they and how they fit and kind of even the the asset allocation part because yeah, sure. we don't we don't just go out and go, oh, we need an Australian equity manager. It kind of it starts we've been running a business or running a portfolio for a while. So we have they call it a, a neutral setting. So whenever you're going to start investing, you need to determine what your objective return is. You know, are you trying to get 15% per annum? Are you trying to get a balanced return, which is more like CPI plus four? So that's used to be 6%. CPI plus B3. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the average, the average media, the average 10-year return is something like six or seven percent for a, a balanced portfolio. And um, so we basically were working out what sort of uh, what sort of risk we need to take for each type of client. A lot of clients are retired and it's more around drawing down. So protecting as well as growing their capital, the younger, younger clients and people who are still working, it can be more aggressive. Um, so the starting point for us is always getting the asset allocation, right? You, you've you know, extensive, as you know, we won't go into the, the research process and the, and the various inputs that go into building an S, a strategic asset allocation for this discussion. It's probably more about, when you're adjusting that. Um, so we've got a portfolio set at the moment. Uh, on a quarterly basis, we'd say, all right, where is our equity exposure compared to where we thought it should be last quarter? Should we be increasing that based on our discussions with economists, uh, investment committee members, uh, and all the different fund managers we meet every week? Um, and then once you make a decision, I've got a, we've got a few examples we can go through before. Uh, are we underweight equities? Are we overweight equities? Are we overweight domestic or global equities? Should we be adjusting those? And it's once you identify the weightings and your views, you know, do we, are markets now overvalued? Should we be reducing our market exposure? Then you start thinking about what manager to add or, or how to review a manager after that, mm. if that wasn't... Uh, too much blabbering no, on. <laughs> no, no, no. So it, I think most people don't think about what their neutral setting would be, right? Yeah. Um, I, you know, you know as well as I do that academic theory is almost purely based on a 60-40 portfolio. You know, yeah. You know, we got 40% defensive assets, 60% growth assets, or like we we tweak it. Most people think about it as bonds and stocks because that's the easiest for our academic yeah. literature to, to to be based on, but. Um, is that like just in loose terms, is that kind of what you think about? Like it's those allocations to growth or um, risk off assets? 
Broadly, yes, that's probably the most important. Um, and as I said at the start, the, the two areas of investment is asset allocation and investment selection. Most people spend 90%, even a lot of advisors spend 90% of their time on the investment selection. Um, I know Vanguard's got reports that say 90% of your returns come from asset allocation. Mm. Um, in our research, 90, 90% relies on asset allocation, but it's more about being staying exposed to markets during that period. And the way you stay exposed to markets, you know, like like in uh, March, the way you don't sell is if you know you've got a portion of capital that's safe mm. in those periods. So you, you, you know you're going to be fine and you can let the rest of it stay in the market. Because we saw there, if you sold in March uh, and would, did, did nothing until now, you'd be 40% lower than um, what people who just stayed invested <laughs> the whole yeah. period were. Um, yeah, we talked about that during March, right? When we were in the office, we were talking about how some people were going all cash and it was just madness. It was it was so it's easy to do in an app. And even some crazy. Australian equity managers, the, the return differential is 30%. Some are down 10 and some are up 20. Yeah. Um, right. Just it over just a 12-month period. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about like one of the words that I use is expression. I'm not the first to use this, so it's not like patented to me, by the way. But... Um, one of the words I use is expression. So if you have, uh, let's call it a trade, and we're not talking about trading, but a trade that you want to um, get exposed to, um, how do you go about deciding what's the best expression of that and what's the best vehicle for getting that exposure? Like yeah. um, if it's a low-cost portfolio, what might, what might you do there versus, say, if you're trying to get exposure to a niche market? Yeah, so it's kind of the first step you take if you think you're underweight Australian or domestic or global equities. Um, how do you do it? I think the default in most cases should be an index uh, mm. or a low cost option, an ETF, the cheapest way you can do it. But then you need to consider <clears throat> you know, if you're buying an ETF or an index in Australia at the moment, you're getting 50% in two sectors. So you're getting 30% financials and 18% materials. Is that really a uh, mm. at the best op is that where you want to be exposed at the moment uh, so we that'd be our starting point for most sectors um, if there's a good index you know the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or the Euro stocks start there if it is a good expression of of the exposure you want generally um, it's it's not as you're kind of getting from this uh, you know we've we've done uh, in our view that that tends to work better when markets are cheap by historical standards so you're more likely to, to use a, a passive or an index strategy when the asx is at four thousand points not saying it's going there yeah um, <laughs> similarly buying the s p 500 you're getting 25 percent in five stocks at the moment so it's yeah we we start at the uh passive level um and then and then start identifying what sectors within which parts of the economy we want, to, we want to be exposed to. And that's where you might get that more um, active approach, like where you're looking for managers to fulfill a specific niche or um, I guess if it's like risk off, like what kind of risk off exposure do you want? Is that is that what, am I thinking the right way there? Or? Yeah, definitely. So when you talk about the asset allocation within the your, your exposure to equities, you'll split that between global and domestic there's always a, a tilt to home because you do get some franking credits and we yep. and the you know tax and reporting benefits but within that you start looking at the market cap uh, exposures within your portfolio so 
do you just want large global tech companies? Do you need some mid-cap? Mid-cap overseas is actually large-cap in Australia. Do you need some global small-caps, mm-hmm. which are mid-cap in Australia? Uh, do you need small-caps in Australia? Where are, the, where are the growth opportunities? Where are the value opportunities? Um, and then the style comes through it as well. So it's, yeah, looking looking into the almost the minutiae of every asset class and comparing valuations across each one. How do you, from a higher level, how do you think about valuations then from markets? Are you using things like the CAPE ratio? Are you like how, are you listening to economists or how do you get that information? A bit of everything. You know, yeah. everyone wishes there was a single rule. You know, the yeah. CAPE ratio has its own issues, as you know. For sure. Um, it's, yeah, it was a survivorship bias and there's a lot of <laughs> other things that come into it. Yep. Um, and like the example here is CSLs trades on a massive PE, so it drags the whole PE of the market up, but you exclude CSL out and it's a very different uh, ball game. So, um, yeah. And then how about like in terms of, so like overseas markets, um, do you engage with economists or do you just more, like, do you use different sources of information to to piece that uh, puzzle together? Uh, everything. So we've got multiple research houses that we use. We've got access to. So the benefit of most managers, the managers we use, as well as managers we don't use, is they're incredibly open with their information and their views. Um, white papers, webinars, and particularly these days, you can get the chief economist of a massive investment bank on a not on a Zoom call, but <laughs> you can attend. You can get the views of everyone quite easily uh, these days. So it's just importing everything and relying on a diverse group of resources and resources you trust as well. Yeah, for um, sure. So and having some external views on your investment committee is always mm. always important. So how about then? Like, let's just describe the week for you. People don't know this about you necessarily. Your client. Um, I walked in on you one day, and you were. You, were, you had this huge Microsoft Word document in front of you and I was thinking, what the heck is he doing? And it was this, this quarterly review that you do. Yeah. It looked like it was about 100 pages of different um, research on different like products and, and companies and what have you. How, how, does, like, how do you structure your week? Do you meet with a lot of fundies each week? Yeah, I wish I could structure it better. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> and fit it all into one day. Um, yeah, we're probably meeting 10 to 15, not just managers, but economists, um, other experts, industry experts from other industries. You know, we're, we're privy to some, of, as you'd see, the IPOs and the and the broker presentations. Um, so it's kind of all over the place. Plus, we read a lot. We, you see my, I treat my inbox as a reading list and I try to finish that off on the weekends. Um, so it's, yeah, constantly meeting people, getting different views, challenging views. Uh, and as you go through our sessions, um, all the managers of the funds that we use are incredibly open and they're willing to answer the most difficult questions. There's no hiding no, no yeah, hiding at all anymore. So you can really understand. And that's one of our requirements with a fund manager is being transparent and accessible. You know, we could call everyone in March that we had engaged and they'd answer and and tell us the questions or answer the questions we had, mm. um, which is so important. I think you got to, Sometimes you've just got to look people in the eye, right, to get a sense of who they are. Yeah. And I, I, maybe I I'm probably not as structured as you, but when I think about managers and I think about funds, 
I'm very privileged in that I get to speak to a lot of great fund managers. I know a lot of people aren't. So that's where the webinars and that type of thing come in. But you are too. Like, walking Maybe into I've got to speak to Hamish Douglas though. You'll have to, you're ahead of me on that one. <laughs> you got Gerald Stack on the show. Yeah, so, Gerald, he's yeah. A, Hamish's boss on the investment committee, isn't he? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so <laughs> perfect. Um, but we are very privileged with that, right? So it's not, you know, we're very lucky. And, and I think my time spent as... Um, a very short time, I should add, spent as um, a funds research analyst. Um, it, it highlighted to me the value from being in the room with managers is is, yeah. is is superb. It's it's hard to put into words because you get so much from that conversation that go well beyond just the fund that you're looking at. You get to insights into their research process, you get to see their models and, and how they think. And I think that's a really important insight you can't get unless you're constantly doing it. Um, Let's and you do about, get different information to what an end investor would get. Oh, totally. Yeah, they're yeah. much more candid. So you're not just getting a monthly report. We're getting white papers. You know, I can't even count how many <laughs> white papers. And web, my whole week could be full of webinars and white papers. And the, the amount of information they're willing to provide and the amount of managers are also willing to provide mm. good ones are support to our investment decisions. So if they want to pitch to, if they think their fund should, replace something else in our portfolio, they'll compare all of their holdings against holdings of their competitors and their performance and their attribution. And their, these are all things we'll, we'll go on to later. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that then. So we've, we've let's um, through the process, your, your investment process, and I guess your client process, if you will, we've moved from, you know, sorting out their, their financial affairs, that side of things, now we've moved through strategic allocation, which might be based on risk profile, appetite, you know, time horizon, all those different wonderful things that we talk about in financial planning. But then the next step is choosing the right manager for that, that portfolio. So yeah. how do you go about doing that? And how do you go about, like, what are some of the, I guess, just from a high level, some of the things that you think about before you, you make a decision to add a manager? So good, uh, I've got, as you expect, we've got extensive uh, questionnaires and information. There's a good tool. Some managers release it, which is, I think it's called the Financial Services Questionnaire. Um, I've never heard of that. If they want to be, uh, I think if they want to be approved as a manager, it's a 50-page questionnaire. They have to detail their investment philosophy. Oh, right. Um, I have seen it, actually. It's more the compliance document, which is actually, you know, when they have to be succinct, (laughs) you get rid of all the... You get rid of all the the fluff and the and the PowerPoint slides that come with it. Uh, yeah, we probably have twenty criteria, but I think we've kind of dumb not dumbed it down, kind of shrunk it down to five because <laughs> we could talk for another six hours otherwise. Yeah. Um, I mean, ultimately, you're looking for after fee returns that are beating the benchmark. That's what we're all looking for. Yeah. And we say after fees because there's always a question about is an active manager. Another another whole discussion. You know, seventy percent of manage, active managers outperform. I also question that statistic, mm. the generalisation. Um, but you take fees out of the equation by assessing performance after fees against benchmarks. Um, yeah. And yes, performance is you know past performance, no guarantee of future performance. But it's a pretty good indicator that someone, particularly in this environment, um, has dealt with a crisis, you know, how they've dealt with crises, have they outperformed during those periods is incredibly important. Mm. Um, how do you think in- about, how do you, speaking of fees, how do you uh-huh. think about performance fees? There are two camps on this. There's one camp that says there should never be a performance fee because 
it means you're paying them to do their job, but you're paying them more to do their job. But then there's the other camp that says, well, we should be incentivizing them to to do better because that's a good outcome for us. How do you, where do you see, see that? I'm on the more performance fees, the better, the more it's expanded, the better, um, yeah. <clears throat> as long as that is reducing the base fee. Yeah. I think it's where the, the institutional world's going, where your base fee gets lower and lower, but you're being paid a performance fee. But for us, that performance fee has to be based on not just benchmark outperformance, but you know absolute returns. There's no point. Why should you get paid for falling 20% if the market fell, fell 30, you, you still lost 20% of our capital. Yeah. That's not our performance. So making sure they're adjusted appropriately. And most, yeah. you know, Platinum's, most funds are now offering a, ba- a, a full fee. So I think Platinum was one example where it's 1.3 or a lower fee plus performance. Um, yeah. And that kind of comes to alignment, which we see as important when picking a manager. So is is the other decision makers investing in in the fund uh, you always want to make sure that their wealth is is invested in a substantial amount yep. um, particularly in some cases and their bonuses and their you know their, their performance targets are going back into the fund not just yours yeah so do you just ask them that yeah most be very open if they're not open then mate, generally they're not yeah. <laughs> investing it in there yeah. um, I mean when it's a startup manager then it's more likely that they they are putting everything in there you know if they're not attached to a big institution so with institutions you just want to make sure that there's still alignment um mm. so so how about then again on a performance fee um i'm guessing you're looking for high watermarks so performance has to yeah. return to the level that it was previously how about then managers who benchmark against fixed uh, benchmark. So say like, a, I don't know, um, like a 5% cash hurdle plus. or 10% hurdle or something or cash plus. Yeah. Something like cash plus. What do you think yeah. about those? Uh, I think they're all right uh, in certain situations. Um, so would you be comfortable if an equity manager, for example, had a 8% ultimate, fixed yeah. fee absolute return? Ultimately, I prefer if it was um, almost a benchmark plus, um, but then, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, you don't want to pull everyone, their, all of their, their fees away from their business if they can't make a decision. For instance, if you're a long-only equity and you uh, you can't move your cash greater than 10%, well, there's only so much you can do yeah. uh, in terms of protecting your portfolio. So it's being wary of that part as well. How about then, say, like absolute return funds? that are like RBA cash rate kind of thing. What do you think about those? Plus a bit more is what yeah. I prefer. <laughs> could, yeah, um, that's, that's always something that struck me as kind of unusual is that, yes, you're an absolute return, but you do invest in risk on assets. So you should have a real hurdle. A real hurdle. Not, and yeah. it, we see this more often that people say, oh, you know, the management fee is pretty low. However, we, you know, we take a performance fee, but... That really, that the management fee being low doesn't really mean much if, if the benchmark for the performance fee is also so low. Yeah. Because then it's just put it in a cash plus fund or like a, you know, cash enhanced fund and you probably make a performance fee. And they've got their own pressures as well. So a lot of the institutional investors that go into these funds will get different fee arrangements to what we and, and, uh, direct investors get hmm. uh, where it's more performance where they want it as low as possible and they don't get the base fee. Um, so it's hmm. kind of, yeah, it's always 
you got to be shrewd. <laughs> and uh, this, this, you bring up a good point there, Drew, which is um, sometimes, and I know that, like for example, that you guys might be able to do this too, is um, when a fundy comes to you and says, "Hey, this is our fund. Come on, we can do this for your clients." And blah blah blah. Do you have bargaining power with them? Sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we can in in quite a few occasions we've negotiated discounts to to management fees. Um, I won't say which ones. Yeah, but it's, it's <laughs> uh, a- only clients will know that. Obviously, they don't want other people to know either. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it, it's actually more work for us because uh, when your uh, fees are rebated in the form of extra units in the fund, we have to enter that onto our system yeah. every <laughs> every month. So it's actually a lot of an administrative burden. But uh, there is some yeah negotiating power definitely. Yeah, and because you you hear this right. I heard some extreme examples this week of some, uh, I won't, again, I won't name names, but investment managers who have been approached by big pension funds to say, yeah, we'll give you a, we'll give you a billion dollars to manage, but it's going to be one basis point. Yeah. You know, that, that's an extreme example, but it does happen quite a bit. And for retail investors, they don't often understand that because they don't have the leverage. They can't say, you know, I've got 50 grand. What can you do for me? You yeah. know, Mr. Manager with, you know, $2 billion under management. So it's, it's a totally different, I guess, bargaining position. Particularly with newer, newer managers um, as well. But obviously the more assets you have, the better. I'm writing an article on probably the same fund manager you're talking about at the moment. Um, so how about then, there's one thing that, I learned from you recently um, when we were just talking offhand, which was this idea that when you rebalance, the actual when is really important. So it's not just about, you know, this is strategic asset allocation, equities have hit this part of this much in the portfolio, let's rebalance. It's actually when, when you make that decision is actually crucial. And March, I think was a really good example of that. So maybe can you talk us through um, like when is the best time to make strategic changes or, tactical changes the best time is the hardest time and that's probably where our value has been shown best in the last few years is that when markets are crashing or running is actually the best time to rebalance it's been the most powerful it was it's not a it's a very nervous (laughs) period yeah i was waking up and seeing the s&p had fallen seven percent overnight and then working out what i what i was going to (laughs) do uh that day um but if you can rebalance, so for instance, there's two, I bought two examples uh, or I have two examples from March, April uh, that we did one during March. So we went outside of our quarterly period and said, we should do this. And yep. then in April as part of our quarterly period. So we did two stages. Uh, we saw that equity markets had fallen 25%. So our equity exposure was very low. We have a large, uh, a reasonable allocation to alternative assets. Another discussion there. Mm-hmm. Um that, it, that held their value or went up. So we made a decision that we needed to increase our equity exposure um, and there's other inputs into that, you know, not necessarily a vaccine, but that the market sell-off was completely over overdone to, to what was actually occurring. Totally. So we moved you know, 5% of the portfolios from alternative assets into uh, equities very close to the bottom of the market. And that, as we said before, if you were selling equities, you just you know, capitalized of 30% loss mm. in, in four weeks. If you were buying equities, well, you just picked up a 40% gain in, in six weeks. Um, so it's, 
as difficult as it is, the quarterly period helps. We try not to be stuck on the quarterly. We're still doing investment committee and reviewing asset allocation at least monthly and, and stocks almost daily. Mm. Um, but the just having structure and being willing to make a, a major decision uh, during difficult periods, and that's where the, I guess, the objectivity of me managing someone else's money versus managing your own money uh, makes it a bit easier. Uh, the amount of positive feedback we got from clients that said, I'm, I'm happy you've been trying to protect our portfolio during this period. Uh, mm. This is great advice. I wouldn't be doing it. Um, couldn't stomach doing it myself. Uh, just kind of being a step back, even though my parents are one of my clients <laughs> as well. So this, uh, yeah. How about then? So let's say you're not someone who's advised. What are some of the, things that people could do, I guess, just to think that way and try and move themselves towards that. Do you think having the structure of quarterly rebalancing is essential for everyone, regardless of whether you're an advisor or not? I think you should at least be doing it every six months. Set an hour hour apart, you know, download some some asset allocation reports. There all, there's a lot you can get. Uh, Morningstar, as we said, is one example that has a, a personal investor um product as well uh we think the first thing we do for every new client is we build an investment policy document which sets out asset allocation rebalancing you know when we buy and sell you know if if equities are five five percent below the target then we want to increase them and kind of those rules yep and then we give every client that on a single page um which I think everyone can easily do you can google I think Vanguard has one as well you google investment policy document Pension funds run with them. Corporate super funds run with them. That's just a simple thing. <clears throat> if you die tomorrow, um, <laughs> someone could pick up your portfolio and hopefully understand what you're doing. Yeah, and then and just it, having some structure. And that's a big thing. Like from you're a certified financial planner, right? Yep. Yeah, CFP, and you see that in the CFA programs as well. It's it's such an important part of the process. People kind of write it off because it's not always the most technical, but it's actually yeah. probably one of the most important parts of the just your own investment process as well, right? It should be the first thing. So every trustee board of a super fund would pull out their investment policy at every board meeting and that's what they refer to. Mm. And if you think it needs to change, you change your policy and then you change your, your investments feeding mm. into it. And it's just discipline. Maybe I'm just one of those kind of regimented people where mm. I like structure, discipline, consistency. Mm. Um, and I think you need that for investing. I think in the US particularly, we're seeing more of this is the robo-advice market servicing that lower end of the market. Um, they're starting to do this more often. So they have yeah. an investment policy statement, but then they also have kind of like feedback loops for the user as opposed to a client, a user in that product or in that service to question their decisions. Like don't click this button unless you've checked this. Yeah, and That's kind of a, a low cost way to fill that need. But I think everyone can do this to an extent, right? But if you do find yourself getting a bit tangled up in everything, go and see someone. Um, let's get back on the topic of um, fund managers. What are some of the questions you would ask a fund manager? Do you have any kind of examples that you can give us from your, you know, you, you mentioned before you have quite a few, but are there any examples that come to mind? I'll probably go examples on what they've been doing. So we talked about attribution. One of the best ideas there uh, is the active share. If you, I'm sure you've, you know, that, stat uh, Maybe you that, can explain it for measure. us just for those people that don't understand it. Yeah, so active shares a percentage and basically the percentage of stocks that that 
company or that fund manager holds that are different from its underlying index. So if it's a US large cap strategy um, and its active share is 95%, that means 95% of the stocks are different to what's in the S&P 500. So mm-hmm. if we're making the decision to employ an active manager, well, we don't want to pay active fees for someone that's doing an index, giving us an index. So if yep. you've got a low active share, honestly, then you may as well buy the the ETF in that in that case. Um, and part of that active share talks about attribution. So where are the returns for that fund coming from? Are they doing what, they, what they're saying is, you know, are they a value manager, right? Is a value manager holding tech stocks? Um, yeah. <laughs> there's kind of this overlap that every, all the factors, we can talk about that too, fall into um, are kind of falling into the same funds. There's a lot of value managers that are holding growth, growth stocks and there's a lot of growth managers holding value stocks. So asking the questions that, uh, and, and confirming where the performance of that fund is coming from. Is it coming from what, what they're actually saying? This is the thing though, right? Like a lot of um, DIY investors, they don't have access to attribution. So attribution yeah. is something that we use a lot in um, advice land, but also in research land. We talk about, so yeah, it's good. You can see the top 10 holdings in a monthly or whatever. But attribution for those people who don't understand it, it actually looks through the portfolio. So I think there are certain people, certain financial providers and data providers that say that, you know, we provide this look through and we'll give it a fancy name and whatever. Yeah. Um, how do you get that attribution on returns? We've got our own systems. We've got a couple of systems. One's right. X-Plan, Iris, yeah. you know, the biggest tech company in Australia, <laughs> which does a portion. And then we use a couple of research providers. And then interestingly, most managers uh, who use mm. the same software as us will will input our portfolio and compare their their strategy they they they'd like us to invest into um, and give us the attribution. So it talks about how many basis points did this individual stock holding add over to performance over a period, how many detracted. And you quickly see if forty percent of the returns are coming from four stocks. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot of look through from a simple simple report. Yeah, and this is um, something that is really interesting because, um, like, to be honest with you, Drew, like I I know from a financial planning perspective that growth versus value is a is a is a conscious choice that advisors make. From a personal investor perspective, I'm kind of like looking for absolute returns, and yeah. I know there are certain times when value is better than growth and whatever. But when it comes to attribution, you can you can also do factor analysis based on what they send you. You can look yeah. at geographies. If they're a global fund, where are they getting their you know, most of their alpha. Um, if they're, you know, if you compare it to the factor models, are they using small caps? Are they using, you know, low PE stocks? Yeah. That's really insightful, right? Yeah, these are, and they're actually really easy for us to get. Um, everyone is, is willing to, to give them to us uh, and we're able to analyze them, so, them ourselves as well, mm. uh, which yeah, you don't get factor in a monthly report or a quarterly report, you get a couple of stock highlights and, and what the top 10 stocks are. Mm. But it's, oh, there's so many tools. You can almost paralysis by analysis mm. <laughs> can be an issue totally. sometimes. Uh, but you're just understanding, are they doing what they're saying? And that part, a big part of that is a question of, you know, if they underperformed in the past, have they changed their approach? You know, is a growth manager that underperformed now becoming a value manager because value is doing better? Uh, these are the kind of reasons you'd remove or you'd you'd, you'd watch for um, in in a manager that you're employing. Yeah, we see that. You see that style drift quite often. Yeah, I don't mind it when a, when a manager is explicit about it. Like, hey, 
we've invested this way for a long time, but we think this is a structural shift. I'm going to be honest with you. This is what we're doing. Yeah. But it's when they don't say anything and they, they've all of a sudden gone from owning, you know, a no tech to all tech. Yeah. Yeah. No tech, all tech. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. And they're not being honest with you. That's where I get a bit frustrated and I'd be more inclined to question that. How about then when it comes to the resourcing of a fund manager? So, um, a lot of people probably don't think about this, but I know you guys do, you think about it a lot, um, which is, you know, a lot of these smaller boutique funds, um, you know, they, they can be one man bands or two man bands or two, two people bands. We shouldn't be, you know, yeah. it's not all men these days. So it, it, it's, you know, sometimes you have very small shops, so to speak. So ha- how do you think about that? The resourcing angle? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a difficult question because you do get great returns and some of our best um, best performances come from from startup managers. I think mm-hmm. the there is a bit of almost flooding in the market. Uh, you have to understand that for most managers, I think something you need something like 150 million under management to be cash flow break even. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that there's anything bad if a fund manager shuts. This is the other benefit of a managed fund over a listed investment company. If they aren't cash for Blake even and they shut down, well, you can get your money back because it's just invested into stocks. If that was potentially an LIC uh, and the manager shut down and someone else took over, then you might be selling at a discount. Um, probably one of the, the differences there. Um, but it's you just have to ask all kinds of questions. How, how funded are they? How much... What are their expenses? Um, and a big part of that is, do they have the res- If you're a global equity manager based in Australia, do you have the resources if you if you're not making money to to outperform Magellan? Um, yeah. Not not pushing <laughs> Magellan or anything. Uh, it's all you know. There's a business businesses too. They they get into it because um, they want to be more aligned with their investors. Uh, so what level of assets do they need to break, to be break even? What level of assets do they need to add new analysts? Because it's great to have one investment decision maker, but as as we all know, you know you you don't want to be relying on a single person. The big yeah. groups have done it well, bringing younger people up and you know spreading the decision making in different portfolios. Um, and one of the issues there is, do they have? Will they spend more time selling their product than they will? Analyzing, yeah. yeah, that's the biggest risk in the in the early days. Um, I think you you have some comfort around when someone's got an extensive background and track record in that specific strategy that they will keep that they they know it. Mm. And particularly if their ex employer has kind of signed off on what they've done. Um, yeah, it's one of those things, right? Um, most people, most new funds, unless they do come out of a big shop and they have a the support of a distribution partner, which we see probably more of these days. Yeah, you know, It's the more the distribution, the person that controls the distribution goes and has control and goes to Macquarie or goes to one of these big shops and says, hey, you guys look like you're good investors. Why don't you come over here? We'll give you a fund. We'll take an equity stake and um, or we'll do all the distribution for you. No worries. Unless you're like that, the other side is the boutique fund who tries to go, go at it by themselves. And they tend to keep their head in the sand for a while until they've got that track record because they know no one's probably going to look at it. Yeah. And it's and kind of, yeah, that's, and it's kind of the fiduciary obligation that a financial advisor has as well. You know, you, we're probably more comfortable backing a, a new manager that's associated with a $500 billion, you know, fund manager 
um, because, you know, they've got the resources. They've got, if you're doing global equities, you've got access to all the research um, from all the biggest players. Uh, so you do have some sort of competitive advantage. Um, so it's, yeah, resource, resourcing like any business. And then I guess, you know, you also, just on that, um, you also want to meet with people, right? Like you, it's just like anything, you got to know what you're invested in. So I imagine that you don't invest with someone unless you speak to them. Is that fair? Yeah, we got three rules. Uh, I think it's three. I mean, there's multiple, <laughs> three <laughs> rules. Uh, we have to have access. So we have to be able to meet the PM, the portfolio manager. Yep. Um, not the, no offense, not the juniors. They might make more decisions, but we want to meet the portfolio manager. Uh, we want to see the real portfolio, the, the, the all the holdings. Yep. Um, usually that's non-disclosure or confidentiality um, yep. and all those sort of things. Um, and kind of standard is fees, uh, making sure the fees are competitive as well. Yeah. How about then just kind of like, I know this conversation has gone on forever and we'll probably come back to it many, many times. But then what about like kind of this last piece, which is, around risk management. So it's funny because when you get these when when you get these research documents and these policy documents, oftentimes the, the risk management is just a couple of paragraphs. Yeah. Um, how do you think about risk management and how do you judge a fund manager's ability to protect capital? Tough question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it depends on the strategy. So a long short manager versus a long only, which means one can take short positions and kind of hopefully protect the portfolio by doing that you have to assess them differently um if it's long short do they use their short positions prior to crises um mm-hmm. and good ones have they and you can see the performance for for some of them um the other ones are one do they have rules in place so you have to ask them things like do you apply stop losses can you increase your cash balance do you what specific rules do you have uh, how, how big can your biggest holding be? What are your sector exposures? Because you can, uh, you know, control your downside by not being overweight. For instance, the banking sector in Australia that's down 30% represents 30% of the index. So you can outperform and you can not lose capital by having sector sector weightings. Mm-hmm. And, and do they actually stick to them? So when you see the portfolio <laughs> and they say that they only have two holdings per sector, but they've got four, um, or there's kind of, yeah, what do they mm. call it? Sector drift or, yeah. um, so just one asking those, the, the deeper questions um, and that you don't have to use stop losses. Um, but if you say you use them, prove that you do. Yeah. And I think, and another one is um, with on that long short pieces, you know, you can, you can, you can get authorizations to have a fund that allows you to go long and short, but do yeah. you actually use them? And the second piece is, is it purely for risk management or is it, are your short positions positions for alpha as well? Yeah, and do you have experience shorting? I yeah. mean, shorting is a very different game to buying a stock and and watching the earnings. Um, you can mm. you can lose more than one hundred percent shorting. <laughs> yeah, and you can uh, lose it quickly, right? Yeah, so. exactly. So you can't just. There's a lot of people that pop up with a long short strategy that haven't uh, don't have the experience on the short side, which is very different. Because uh, this is, a, this is, I guess, this is the catch twenty two of having all these the, the different mandates and restrictions from a risk management perspective. It, it's good because it, you can sell because you can go to a planning group and say, yeah, you know, we only have this amount of weightings in this sector and blah 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 blah. But 
at the same time, if they are a good investor, you want to give them the freedom to invest well. Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 it's a bit of give and take and you have to, that's why I feel like eyeballing the fund manager is really important. You have to understand their thought process as much as what they've written on the, the marketing document. Yeah. Cool, mate. Um, I'm cognizant that we originally said we'd keep this to 30 minutes. Now it's an hour, <laughs> isn't it? It's talk about style drift. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we've, we've gone on for a bit, but, um, I know that you're, you're producing, um, one interview a week or thereabouts, um, and now the podcast, the Waddle, the Waddle Partners podcast is on iTunes. Um, that's great. Well done. Um, it was there. exciting. <laughs> <laughs> but it's on, it's because you're meeting with all these fund managers anyway, so uh, may as well record them, right? And so yeah. it's not just for clients. Anyone can go and listen. Yeah. Um, so we'll, I'll put some links in the show notes for folks. Um, and you'll be back. We're, we're going to try and do these things every fortnight or every so often so we can, we can touch base and talk about more than just financial planning because your remit goes well beyond that. But um drew mate from waddle partners thanks for thanks for taking the time to join me on the show thanks again